Good evening, everybody. Evening, everybody. Yeah, there we go. You are alive. Awesome. Good to see you. Uh, my name's Mark. I'm one of the team here. I'm a pastor. A pastor is a word, uh, if you haven't heard it before, it just means that I, uh, I teach people about Jesus and I get the privilege of loving the people who belong to this church. That's my full-time job. I love it. Uh, I love that you're here with us tonight, especially if it's your first time. I want to add my welcome to Heidi's. Uh, we're going to have a think about that story that uh, Matt just read out for us from the Bible. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to pray again. I'm going to ask God to help us to understand the things that we've just read. So if you're the praying type, uh, please pray with me. Our great and he- loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Bible. And then we get to read it and we get to hear stories about you and learn more about what you are like. Please would you help us now as we spend a bit of time thinking about this story. Help us to understand correctly who you are and what you would have us do. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, tonight we are thinking about the topic of satisfaction. That's the word for tonight, satisfaction. What does it mean to be satisfied? And actually, how do you get satisfaction? What does it take to to experience satisfaction in life? That's what we're going to be thinking about. Being satisfied, it is that uh, that concept uh, that means that you have everything that you need. And in fact, being satisfied probably means more than that. It means that you have everything that you want as well. That's really what satisfaction means is about. Uh, I read a story in a paper a few years ago about a guy in America by the name of Roy Pearson. And Roy Pearson had decided to sue a dry cleaner, a dry cleaner that had a sign up in their window saying satisfaction guaranteed. And this dry cleaner had lost a pair of Roy's pants. They had broken their guarantee to him. And so he decided the right thing to do in a litigious society is sue that dry cleaner. Fair enough, he's entitled to some compensation there. He'd left dissatisfied. Uh, The problem was that Roy decided to sue the dry cleaner for $54 million. That was the value that he put on his pants. Uh, The case was obviously overthrown in court, turned away. The judge said, no, thank you. Uh, The dry cleaner was ordered just to replace Roy's pants. Pretty straightforward. And so for Roy, at least, he went away dissatisfied. And that's the thing about satisfaction. It is hard to find. Would you agree? You know, the the Rolling Stones sang in 1965, I can't get no satisfaction. And for my money, I don't think much has changed since then. From where I sit, to me, it looks like most people in this world are constantly looking for that thing that will satisfy them, searching for satisfaction. I think most people in this world are are hungry for something that is going to fill them, thirsty for something that is going to quench their thirst. Is that true for you? Are you feeling satisfied in life? You know, do you have everything that you want in life? Everything that you need in your life? Or perhaps are you just like the rest of us, just searching for that thing somewhere out there that will finally once and for all satisfy you? Uh, do you remember an ad that was on TV a few years ago? It was an ad that uh, started by, by zooming in on a guy asleep in bed. And there was a song quietly playing in the background. It was the song Satisfaction by Benny Benassi, if you remember that song. And uh, as the guy's lying there, his mouth starts to open and his tongue starts to come out of his mouth. And his tongue keeps coming out of his mouth and it detaches from his face, pops onto the bed, onto the floor, slithers away out the door, out onto the road and crawls across the road to the party across the street. You remember this ad? When it gets to the party, it climbs up on the esky and it takes a little swim and it wraps itself around... A two is extra dry. 
And then, it, and then it pulls that beer all the way back across the street, back to its owner, climbs up the bed, pu- climbs back in his mouth, and the guy wakes up with the beer in his mouth. There it is. Very subtle ad. Do you get the message of that ad? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? You are looking for something to satisfy you, even if you don't know it. That is what that ad is telling us. So let me ask you, friends, do you know what it is that you're looking for? Have you, have you pinned it down? Do you know what you're searching for in this life? Maybe this is one way to think about it. How would you finish this sentence? I will be satisfied if, if what? What comes next for you? $5 million, that's a good one. I will be satisfied if I get the uni marks that I really want. I will be satisfied if my team wins the, the cup this year. I will be satisfied if that guy or that girl goes out with me. I will be satisfied if I have hair like Mark Roberts. You know, it could be any number of things. We are all searching for something, that's my point. We are all thirsty for something. What are you thirsty for? Well, in this story in the Bible from John's biography of the life of Jesus, we're going to meet some thirsty people, uh, some people who have run out of wine at a wedding and they are lacking satisfaction. And we are going to see what God has to say to thirsty people such as us. So let's, uh, let's dive back into that story in the Bible. John chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, leave it open on your lap there. Uh, some verses are going to come up on the screen. You can follow along there as well. And the story begins, and Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding. They're having a bit of a party. And the wedding's gotten off to a reasonable start, but pretty soon we find out that the wedding has hit a snag because they've run out of wine. The bar's closed. Now, to just give you some context here, these ancient weddings, that, like the one that's being described here, these were big affairs. These were five-day-long feasts that the whole village, the whole community would have been invited to these things. That sounds like a real ordeal to me, a wedding that long. Uh, when I got married a few years ago, my wedding was 45 minutes long. To this day, it is the shortest wedding I've ever been to. Pretty proud of that. Our reception was done in three hours. Couldn't wait to get out of there. Running out of wine at a wedding like mine, no big deal. Running out of wine at something like this five-day marathon celebration, this is like a social disaster that we're, we're so zoning in on here. Nobody wants to go to a party like that. And so, in our story, Jesus' mum, Mary, steps in to try and kind of fix the problem, right? She fronts up to Jesus and she says there in verse 3, they have no more wine. It's a funny thing to say to Jesus, he's just a guest, But Jesus' mum seems to think that Jesus has got the ability to do something about this problem, right? And Jesus gives her a very interesting reply. It's a a reply that's quite blunt. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It's a very blunt reply, but it's also a very confusing reply, isn't it? What is Jesus getting at here? What is this hour that he's talking about? Well, just put a pin in that question. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Anyway... After this interaction, Mary somehow interprets Jesus' blunt reply uh, to suggest that he is going to go and do something about it. And so Mary goes and tells the servants, make sure you do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And so Jesus sets to work. You read there in verse 6 that he sees these big stone water jars there, each of them able to hold you know, about 100 litres of water. And Jesus goes and tells the servants, fill those water jars right up to the brim. So you can see the water just you know, on the meniscus overflowing the top there. And so the servants do that. They fill them all the way to the brim. 
And Jesus tells them, well, okay, done that now. Take some of it out and go and give it to the master of the banquet, the, the MC of the wedding, basically. Now, we don't get told much detail here, so we don't know what those servants are thinking at this point, but they have got to be scratching their heads, don't they? This is strange kind of instructions. They would have been confused here, but nevertheless, they do what Jesus asks them to do. They go and take some of the water out of the jars and give it to the MC. But somehow, you see, the, the miracle here is that by the time this liquid hits his lips, it's not water anymore. It's been transformed into the most amazing wine that this guy has ever drunk. Now, the majority of wine connoisseurs in Australia will tell you that the best wine that has ever been produced in Australia is called a Grange by a, a, a winery called Penfolds. Uh, these are the best wines Australia has ever produced, apparently. They are so good that they set the bar for all other wines in this country. And if you want to go and sample the best wine Australia's ever produced, you've got to get your hands specifically on a 1951 Grange. Uh, believe it or not, there are still some bottles of 1951 Grange, almost 80, 70 years old wine still floating around Australia. Go and get your hands on one of these. Make sure you have uh, about $80,000 spare, because that's how much one single bottle of this wine is going to set you back. And then you will be sampling the best wine that Australia has ever produced. But even Penfold's Grange doesn't measure up to this drop in the story. The MC, he calls over the bridegroom in verse 10, and he says, mate, everybody serves the good wine first, and then later in the party, when everybody's had a few too many, they bring out the dodgy stuff, but you haven't done that. You have saved the best till last. You see, this guy who drinks it, he is satisfied. In fact, more than that, he is delighted at what he is tasting. What Jesus gives him, you see, is more than he could have hoped for in his wildest dreams. His thirst has been quenched by 600 litres of the best wine he's ever tasted. Now, this is a great story, isn't it? This is a, a really cool little story here that we read about Jesus at this wedding party. But maybe as you kind of read through it, we talk about it a little bit, maybe you're still scratching your head a bit. Like, what is, what is this story about Jesus at the wedding actually all about? What are we supposed to take away from this story? What's it all mean? Well, uh, maybe as we read through it, and we've just been talking about it now, maybe the big thing that jumped out to you is just how surprising it is for Jesus to be at a party like this and be the one who's organising the drinks for everybody. Like, maybe your picture of Christians is that uh, most of us probably wouldn't want to be at a place like that. We would be opposed to that kind of an activity. Maybe that's what you think about uh, Christians. And so you wouldn't expect Jesus to be doing this kind of thing. He's a super religious guy. You know, he probably doesn't want to have anything to do with people like that and goings-on like that. But you see, friends, that's not at all how Jesus operates here, right? Not at all. And in fact, all throughout the stories of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible, that's not what we see Jesus doing, withdrawing from people. Now, Jesus does the opposite time and time again. Jesus goes to people. He goes out to people, regardless of whatever context or situation in life they are in. He goes to them and he befriends them and he helps them and he loves them. And so maybe that stands out to you in this story, seeing Jesus do that. 
I want to say, if you're a guest here tonight, uh, and if you know some of the Christian people here at Wollongong Baptist, then we really hope that you have seen that same attitude in those Christians that you know in, in us here. Because we want to be the kind of Christian people who go out to other people, regardless of whatever situation they're in, and we want to befriend people, we want to help people, and we want to love people, just like Jesus is doing here. You know, this story, it does show us that, that God himself, as God comes to earth and walks the earth in the person of Jesus Christ, that he does not withdraw from people. He doesn't pull back. He goes to them, spends time with them, mixes it up with them. This story does show us that. And that is a significant part of this story. But I want to suggest to you that there's actually something more significant going on here. Much, much bigger meaning to this story than just that. Let's have a look again at what John writes at the end of the story in verse 11, the last verse that we read out. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. John says this whole thing at the wedding, it was a sign. And what's the deal with signs? Signs are pointing somewhere to state the obvious, right? You're not supposed to be impressed by the sign. The sign's not the amazing thing. The thing you're supposed to be captivated by is the thing that the sign is pointing towards. So the question is, well, what is this event, this, this miracle pointing towards? It's pointing to something. What is it pointing towards? Well, you remember what Jesus said back in verse 4 to his mum, Mary? He says that my hour has not yet come. Now, all throughout John's gospel, this, this biography of Jesus here, Jesus keeps saying that phrase. He says, this is not my hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour of glory is coming later. It's coming soon. It's not here yet. Jesus keeps going on about this hour. And he says that when this hour comes, it is going to be his moment of glory. I wonder, have you ever had a, a moment of glory you know, those kind of like crowning achievements in your life, those, those times when all of the circumstances just come together perfectly and you come away looking awesome. You ever had one of those kind of experiences? You score the winning goal in the final minute of your match for your team and everybody lifts you up on their shoulders and gives you a clap. Or maybe you solve a problem at work and your boss just directs all of the praise and all of the credit to you and you get the kudos for that. Maybe uh, you tell a killer joke in some social situation at the perfect time and the whole place just erupts and you look so smart and clever. That is your hour of glory. You ever had a moment like that? A crowning achievement? Well, the hour of glory that Jesus is talking about here, this hour that is coming, it's actually the hour when Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross. It's the hour at which Jesus will die. That's what he says, actually, at a couple of places in John's Gospel, that it's at that moment that Jesus is going to look most glorious when he's nailed to a cross, bloody, beaten, and struggling to breathe. That's his moment of glory. And that's a, like, that's a completely upside-down kind of an idea, isn't it? That's not what we think a moment of glory should be. And somehow, Jesus says he's going to look great at that moment. And somehow, this story of the wedding in Cana is supposed to point us as a sign towards that hour. This miracle, it's a preview of what Jesus is going to do at the cross. You tracking with me on this? Let's keep moving. Uh, 
It all has to do, you see, with those stone jars that Jesus turned the water into wine in. We kind of skipped over this detail. I was a little bit sneaky with you here. Back in verse 6, there's one very important detail that we are told about all of this water in these jars. Let's read verse 6 again. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Right? This was the water that Jewish people washed their hands in before they ate a meal. This was the water that they thought somehow could kind of wash them clean before God. And the Jewish people, they were passionate about that, that being clean before God. Right? They, would, they would wash ceremonially the first thing in the morning when they woke up to try and wash away the evil spirits that would come during the night. They would wash before a meal. They would wash after a meal. They would wash as they entered into the temple to worship God. Their whole lives were consumed with this act of washing themselves clean. And it wasn't just about hygiene, right? This is a sign, this is action. It's a ritual that they believed could make them clean before God. They knew that they were unclean before God and that they needed to be clean to stand before this almighty, glorious, powerful God. And so they used this water to try and do it. Now, this is a bit of a probing question for you, but I wonder, have you ever put much thought into the question of how you can be clean in the sight of God? Is that a question you've ever kind of kicked around in your brain at all? How can you be clean in the sight of God? You know, we all know that feeling, don't we, of being unclean. We know what that feeling is like. When you're covered in like mud or dirt from head to toe, it feels like it's in every orifice, in between your fingers, in your hair. You know that kind of feeling? You're just disgusting. And the only thing that you want at that moment in time is a shower, right? That would be just a godsend at that point when you were that filthy. Uh, When I was dating uh, my now wife, uh, Catherine, uh, one of the ways that I used to show my affection to her was that when we would go to the beach, uh, I used to have this practice where Catherine, uh, when she was getting up out of the surf and walking back up the sand to her towel, I would come out of the water behind her and I'd run up and I'd tackle her onto the ground and I would roll her along the ground. And I called it schnitzeling her because she ended up like a schnitzel, right? It's disgust- she hated it, but, you know, it worked because she'd married me. So it's quite- I, th- I think of it like the, equivalent of, the adult equivalent of like pulling a girl's pigtails in primary school when you like them. This is what I did to Catherine, and she married me. We know that feeling, don't we? Just crusty, head to toe, covered every inch of you in filth. You know what that feeling is like, right? At that point in time, you don't want anything else. You don't need anything else. The only thing you need is to get clean. Every single thing that you might desire takes a backseat to that desire to get clean. That's what's most important in that scenario, right? Well, I reckon that our consciences are actually a bit like that too. Are you aware of that feeling of being unclean on the inside? Do you know what that feeling is like? I mean, here is a newsflash for you. As Christians, we, we believe that we are not spotless, perfect people. We, we know that full well. We know that we have got stuff in our lives that just needs to be wiped clean. I wonder, do you know that kind of sense as well? You know, maybe for you, it's, it's as you look back in your past, you think about all those people that you've hurt in your life. Maybe you've hurt someone and you know that you were in the wrong, And you feel like a monster because you didn't know that you could cause such damage to another human being. So you feel unclean. 
Maybe for you, your uncleanness stems from feeling hurt by somebody else. Maybe something that somebody has done to you has left you feeling tarnished or dirty. Maybe for some people, you, you know what this is like, when you spend time with that certain group of friends that you know you probably shouldn't spend time with and you come away just feeling like you need to wipe the, the muck and the grime off you. you know, all that gossip and slander has made you feel dirty. Or maybe for you, you've, you know, you've caught up in some sexual stuff and it's gone too far and now you live day by day with that lump in your throat. I don't know what it is for you, friends, but if you're anything like me, then you will not need to scratch very deep beneath the surface to find the shame and the guilt and the uncleanness. We know that that is a problem, don't we, if we're being honest with ourselves. I heard the story a little while ago of a guy named Bruce Roderick. Uh, if we had to describe Bruce, uh, we would say that Bruce is a bad guy. Uh, Bruce had spent over 30 years of his life in prison, uh, for some pretty bad stuff. He'd been a drug dealer, he'd committed armed robbery, plenty of assaults, lots of other things as well. And when Bruce got out of prison, he put an ad on Craigslist, which is like the American equivalent of Gumtree. Bruce, in this ad, asked to find a tattoo artist who'd be willing to work free of charge to cover up a swastika tattoo that he got on his arm when he was in prison. Bruce didn't have a penny to his name because he'd wasted most of his life, so he was asking for somebody who'd be willing to do it for free. And a reporter saw this ad and went and contacted Bruce, got in touch with him and interviewed him. And that was where I heard this story. And as, as this reporter is interviewing Bruce, it becomes very clear that Bruce is living with a lot of regret in his life and that he's carrying around a lot of pain and guilt on his shoulders. At one point in his life, in this interview, as he's reflecting back on what he's done, he says this, I spent over 30 years in prison. I'd like to have those years back. I never had any kids. My mother and father are both dead. They never saw me succeed in nothing. I'm 61. I'm getting older. And I don't want to die and have God see that on my arm. Bruce is expressing there something that I reckon we all feel at a very deep deep level. We all want to be clean. And I'm not just talking about a superficial kind of surface level cleanness. No, we want to have this stuff wiped from our consciences. We want to have our souls be spotless. Do you know that feeling? And, and just like when you are covered in mud or dirt or sand, nothing is going to satisfy you until you have that problem solved. Until you are washed clean, it doesn't matter what you try and use to satisfy your hunger, to quench your thirst. Nothing will satisfy you until you are first made clean. And so the question is, how are you going to stand clean before God? You know, the, the Jews thought that they could clean themselves up with this ceremonial water, but it never worked, did it? That's why they had to keep going back time and time and time again, washing themselves, trying desperately to make themselves clean. Do you know the story of Macbeth? One of Shakespeare's you know, famous plays. I'm going to spoil it for you if you haven't read it. It's hundreds of years old, though, so don't complain. Uh, the basic story of Macbeth is that there is this guy, Macbeth, and his wife, Lady Macbeth, and they plot to kill the king of Scotland, King Duncan. And they do. They kill him. They dethrone him. 
And basically, the story of Macbeth from that point on is the story about how these two people got everything they ever wanted in life, but now how they have to live and deal with the guilt that they're carrying around with themselves. And there's one point in the story where Lady Macbeth is up uh, late at night. She's restless. She can't sleep. And she's pacing around, and she is worried uh, about this blood that is on her hands. Literally, she keeps seeing King Duncan's blood on her hands, and it is distressing to her. And so she tries constantly to be trying to, trying to clean this blood off her hands. She's scrubbing her hands. She's saying, out, damn spot, out. But it doesn't work because the blood is not really there on her hands. It's not on the outside. The blood is on the inside. It's on her conscience. And it's exactly the same with us. You know, we can't clean ourselves up. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves clean. No ceremonial washing is ever going to do that for us. No religious ritual is ever going to make you clean. No spiritual practice that you might engage in is going to do that for you. If only it was as simple for us of being made clean as covering up a tattoo. If only that would solve our problem. But it's much deeper than that, isn't it? Much deeper. And just like Lady Macbeth, we will never find rest. We will never find peace. We'll never find satisfaction in life until that stain is gone. So do you see what's going on here in this story, in John chapter 2? Have you pieced it together yet? Let me take it one more time from the top for you. Mary says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right, and it's a way bigger problem than just at a wedding. These Jews, they have a problem that they can never be satisfied because this ceremonial washing is not going to help them one bit. They don't have the wine that they need. That water is useless. What they really need is going to come at the cross. It's going to come in my hour of glory. So you see, this, this 600 litres of wine, this miracle that Jesus makes, it's just a shadow. It's another sign pointing forward to the endless supply of cleansing water that is going to come at the cross. Far better than any wine that comes before. It is Jesus' own blood that he sheds on the cross, which is going to give us everything we need. Jesus' own blood will deal with our uncleanness. Jesus' own blood will give us rest. And yes, Jesus' own blood will give us satisfaction once and for all. So do you want to deal with your uncleanness before God? If so, then the way to do that is delightfully simple. Uh, and it's there right for us at the end of this story in verse 11, the end of the passage. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's exactly what John wants us to do as we read these words that he wrote. Nothing more, nothing less. You put your trust in Jesus. You believe in him. You hand your life over to him and you stop looking for satisfaction anywhere else. You trust in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. And he will wash you to be perfectly clean. How about we pray together? Jesus, we are so thankful that you went to the cross and died a death that we deserve. We thank you that you provided for our cleansing what we could not provide ourselves. Jesus, thank you so much that your blood washes us perfectly clean so that we can stand before our God. Please, God, help us to trust and believe in you. Amen.